Hi, and welcome to the A16Z podcast. I'm Hannah, and this is another in our series of all remote podcasts. We're at a moment where we're now seeing medicine go virtual faster and at a scale that it has never done before. So in this conversation with A16Z bio general partners, Vijay Pandey and Julie Yu, who come from the worlds of biotech and care delivery, we talk about what exactly virtual care and telemedicine is and what it isn't, what it works well for, what doesn't yet, and where there's potential. And finally, the current pain points, including regulation, and what we'll learn from this current moment for the next generation of tools. Stay tuned for another episode soon where we'll also cover the clinical perspective from the field next. I'm going to tell you guys right now that there may be some dog barks and kid <laughs> stuff in the background. Okay, so we're all getting these messages from all our providers telling us to you know, use virtual chat, to use all these different telemedicine tools. So um, we're in a moment where medicine is really going virtual at scale. Can we start by just talking about what virtual medicine or telemedicine actually means? What Mm -hmm. those different categories are? Is it all the same thing? Like, what are we actually talking about here? Typically, what people think about when we say virtual care is probably the, the traditional sort of video visit um, where you know you have two screens, the patient and the provider are talking to each other live. You know, virtual care, I think, is much more of like a broader paradigm around you know how do you sort of overcome the the constraints of the traditional healthcare system, which are largely, I would say, two things. One is geography, which is that you know typically you as a patient, the demand side of the market only really has access to the supply side that is within a reasonable radius of where they physically are. And then also the physical brick and mortar component of healthcare. So basically a way to get around the fact that you, at the moment, you have a certain doctor within your geographic range and a certain provider. End of story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's more than just video visits as well. It could be asynchronous messaging. It could be continuous monitoring. It could be, you know, sensing. Frankly, it could even be a telephone call. I mean, we can go low tech in addition to higher tech. Uh, and as an alternative, just everybody goes to the emergency room because they don't know what they're doing. Just even the triaging of the telephone call goes a long way. In terms of on the biological side, what works for telemedicine and what doesn't? I can say like, oh, I have a fever and my ear really hurts. I'm highly suspicious of an earache. And like, probably Mm -hmm. you could make that diagnosis based on a lot of stuff without actually looking in my eardrum, but like listening to lungs or listening to heart, like how... What are the limitations of what works and what doesn't for this particular medium? You know, for a general practitioner, you could probably do a vast majority of what uh, is done there. I mean, not, certainly not everything. Let's say just even in the routing function, where we're trying to just understand what are the more serious cases and what has to be done, uh, you could probably do a lot of triaging, and and that might be the most important thing. And the key thing, especially in a situation like we have today, you have routing um, with the benefit of not having to bring someone in physically. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, it's natural to think about what you can't do, but just the unique things of what you can do, reaching people immediately and also keeping them uh, sort of quarantined uh, is particularly intriguing. In, in many ways, like an ER or a hospital is one of the most dangerous places to be just in general. So you're saying essentially it's not really about diagnosis, it's about triage? Uh, I think the, the diagnosis goes hand in hand with triage, but that might be one of the biggest uh, wins just to know what to escalate and, and how to handle it. In some ways, that's what a GP's job is, you know, to say, oh, this is something that could be dealt with home care or this is something that could be escalated, that needs to be escalated. The telephone call, the call your kind of pediatric nurse <laughs> stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's been some level of that already. We're starting to lean on that a lot more in this particular moment. The video chat is is 
definitely one of the things we're seeing most. Where are we right now in how in how much we're using these tools and how kind of robust they are in in their rollout in the system? When you think about like the, the traditional phone call, which yes, is a form of virtual care. Um, one of the challenges of that model is that every single caller is treated the same. And when they're waiting in the queue, there's no way to understand how to effectively triage the ones that might have higher risk versus versus lower risk. And so there's a whole slew of companies that have um, a virtual agent or like a chatbot um, that essentially can ask you questions in a digital form and in a self-service way that, you know, sort of prioritize the level of risk of a patient prior to them even engaging with the healthcare system. That's one thing that will unlock a bunch of capacity is you know, rather than just brute force putting everyone in a line and waiting until they a human answer the phone to figure out whether where they need to go, these technologies can actually um, sort of be more intelligent about how to route people in the right direction up front. And is that happening yet now? When we have this telemedicine conversation, it feels like I'm in line, I'm waiting, and then the nurse, you know, pops up and we have a conversation. I may may type a few things in, but is it actually being sort of prioritized in pockets? So there are um, a set of larger employers and a set of larger health plans that have partnered with these digital health companies to make those tools available to their members or to their employees. It's not by any means in the mainstream, but you are seeing, uh, you know, all over the web, all these companies are broadcasting the fact that they have intelligence in those virtual chatbots that can help people assess what their level of risk is with regards to COVID specifically, um, but also all sorts of other things. And um, essentially allow them to uh, determine whether or not they actually need to come into a physical brick and mortar clinic. You know, compared to what we could be doing, it's it's really intriguing in that uh, it wouldn't take much for people to do vitals at home. If you think about the sort of virtual paradigm, is you know how can the doctor connect with measuring things? Uh, the fact that now you can measure a lot of things at home, such that you know maybe even a hundred dollars would get you a kit that your family could use to uh, get. Um, basics plus plus, you know, maybe even includes like a, a stethoscope that the, that can send the sounds of of uh, your heart and your lungs and so on to the doctor. I think there's a lot more that could be done than what we're doing right now. When you think about like the tools that we all like the, that the vast majority of Americans at least have like in their household set of things, um, like thermometer is definitely one where it's pretty much you can assume that you know most most citizens have a thermometer in their house. But there's many, many other categories of like tests, essentially, that either aren't available to consumers off the shelf at your CVS and actually require either you to send a sample into a central lab somewhere and, you know, wait for the cycle to, to run to, to get back the results or that you still need to come in. And that, that's one of the big challenges right now that we're seeing with, with uh, COVID is that there is no at-home test and you have to actually come into these physical facilities to you know both have the sample taken and the lab test run and that's just exacerbating the supply side problem right now with regards to capacity and so i think that's going to be a big area where we're already starting to see tremendous movement i think this moment is highlighting the fact that there is so much more that we need to be investing in as far as innovation to bring those tests truly into a package modality that allows human uh, that allows consumers to actually do them in their home but so, so Julie, are you thinking if it is like a, just a blood or a urine sample, that probably could be collected by a mobile phlebotomist as well? Correct. Yeah. Where essentially like the sample collection kit can be sent to your house and it's either a urine sample or a simple blood, blood prick or a saliva sample. Um, and that, you know, that kit still needs to be sent to a central lab to be actually run. And then again, there's a, there's a latency, um, to, to getting the results back, but, but you also have other tests. Like, I mean, the pregnancy test is the most canonical example of this, where you can run the entire end to end test in your home 
and yeah. get immediate results. And so I think that's what we should aspire to is that a, a, a larger portion of um, sort of what we call standard blood tests should be available in, a, in, in that kind of packaging. Yeah, no, it'd be great if it was done at home, but I think even like sending to a central lab isn't really that different than what a GP would do. Well, what is, I mean, I, what are the limits? Because I hear you pointing out a lot of different things that we could theoretically be doing even right now, but where are the limits right now of like, no, this is really this, you know, this, the, the opportunity for virtual medicine does end here. You need human to human care delivery. Yeah. The obvious one is if you need a procedure done, like a surgery, um, then clearly today that is something that does require coming to a physical operating room type setting, like a facility that can actually handle that kind of, of course, high risk yeah. procedure. But that seems so far out on the spectrum. Like, yeah, right? I know it's probably yeah. a while a while until everyone has like a Da Vinci robot in their home that right, you know right, a, a surgeon yeah. can can control remotely. But you know, hey, we we can all dream. But that that portion of the market has been unbundling as well in terms of it used to be the case that you had to go to a hospital. Now we have these ambulatory surgery centers that specialize just on outpatient surgical procedures. So, you, you I mean, there are certain components of that that you could predict ultimately make it out to the community. So that, that's kind of one category. The other thing that, that's worth mentioning is you know, when, when we talk about virtual care, we typically think about the patient to provider interaction as the component that needs to be virtualized. But there's a whole back end, like provider to provider communications still are not virtualized either. Um, like a lot of what you are seeing out there on social media and physicians, you know, sort of speaking out about what's happening with coronas is that they themselves don't have the means to communicate with each other in a real time fashion. So at the moment, where does that break down? So even if you have like a fantastic, you know, virtual visit with your doctor, but you don't have to go in, your doctor can call you antibiotics or like, where does the system start failing in that data sharing behind the scenes, provider to provider? Yeah, I would say like the ba- like the, the best case scenario is that it just slows things down where you have to um, have more manual processes in place to aggregate information that the next provider who you see needs to be able to make the, the right decision. Worst case scenario is that you actually don't have access to that data and you either are blind to that and, and therefore make uh, an incorrect or inaccurate decision or that you have to repeat you know, whatever was done to you before, um, which obviously adds cost to the system. So I think that's those are a couple of the, of the examples that we see. It's, that's rampant um, today uh, in terms of where a lot of the unnecessary costs in the system are is simply because we don't have data liquidity and therefore there's a lot of repeat testing and assessment that needs to be done to get a holistic view of every patient at every individual encounter. It's kind of a, a, a weird ju- juxtaposition of, you know, kind of the good and the bad that's happening right now. But uh, CMS and ONC just published their interoperability rules that mandate um, the adoption of certain inter- interoperability standards and technologies for hospitals to exchange medical information. And, you know, until that is in place, um, I think one of the biggest constraints to actually virtualizing care models is the exchange of data that enables all of the decentralized players to have access to the the same information. You know, it's fun to connect to what Julie's talking about, about virtual care being not just sort of uh, GP to to patient at home, in that you could imagine having a sort of virtual care where you have a uh, specialist consult uh, done virtually. Exactly. Because right now, often the patient has to reschedule a whole nother meeting. Mm-hmm. And and uh, having that done briefly virtually uh, would be particularly intriguing. And then the other topic that this connects to that's, uh, I think, a part of broader stuff that we've spoken about in the past is sort of the unbundling of the hospital. It's interesting just to think how far you can unbundle it with the goal of keeping people out of hospitals as much as we can. 
keep them at home and do as much as you can do at home, uh, do it in local centers as much as you can do there and only escalate to a hospital. If, if, you know, if you're having like a triple bypass, I don't think that's ever going to be done at home. Certainly not anytime soon. But like, I kind of want to know, like, what's the farthest you can imagine it, you know, right now with what we've got right now, short of a triple bypass? Like, uh, I think all the reading, you could do a lot of reading at home because you could do the blood tests, you could do urine tests, you could do various measurements, but like the writing where you do anything to a person, I, I think probably that might be a, just way too far. Although I have to say, I had like a weird foot thing, you know, last year, and my doctor prescribed a virtual physical therapist to me who like, you know, mm. we had an appointment, we did exercises, and it was much easier than going somewhere. Exactly. Physical therapy is probably one of the places where it's an intervention um, that traditionally has yeah. required going to a clinic. But that is one of the big areas where you start to see um, kind of at-home innovation. Yeah, that's a great point too, especially since, you know, for physical therapy, but for medicine in general, compliance is such an issue. Yeah. And if this just helps with compliance, I mean, um, to some extreme, just having someone watch you to make sure you take <laughs> your meds and so on, like having a having a parent or something like that or, or yeah. a buddy. So PT often is about compliance. There's all this compliance stuff that probably could be improved uh, with sort of virtual care. Part of the problem is that we're, uh, in many ways, we're not even trying. I think uh, that there's a lot more that we could be doing, but it, it means a sort of a capital outlay to get the programs going and and then to, to get rolling. But, that, you know, so that's on the provider side. On the patient side, you could argue, too, that there are a lot of people that don't take advantage of even what we could do now. And that part of what is powerful about the doctor's visit is just sitting there with the doctor and uh, how much that, you know, is a form of medicine in its own right. I think, you know, they've done these uh, interesting um, tests where they have, uh, you know, sort of these different variants of the doctor visit and just the doctor giving attention has a huge sort of uh, placebo-like effect or sort of positive effect. And so we wouldn't want that human connection part to be lost and how to do that is is tricky. Um, On the other hand, maybe even just cultural things change and it just becomes much more of a norm to connect to people virtually. Uh, That may change. um, That may change a lot. I remember even like when the the history of the telephone, people originally thought the telephone would be seen as such an impersonal kind of like no one would ever want to use that versus, uh, you know, connecting in person. I think we sort of just got over that and got used to that. I mean, ironically, we're doing this uh, remotely where none of us are in the same room right now, but it kind of, I feel like it'd be just like, it would be the same if we were. (laughs) Yeah, almost the same. Yeah. Yeah. If we can just get over it and get used to it, that may actually still incur a lot of those benefits. What else in terms of stress points? Because we're starting to see, you know, this is going to be like a fast, big, hard rollout of a whole bunch of stuff for a bunch of people that have never used telemedicine in immediate use all over the place. So yeah. what what are some of the other stress points that you think we're going to start see popping up that like, well, you know, next generation of virtual medicine tools will learn from? Well, two structural things that we should definitely mention are on the regulatory and like the payment side, where um, if I'm a doctor and I see what's going on and I have a motivation to spin up my own virtual care practice, it's very non-trivial to do that on the fly because of regulation around licensure. So it is not the case that I can um, treat virtually every patient across all 50 states unless I am appropriately licensed in the states where the patients are located. It's definitely a source of friction that you know prevents a lot of companies from, from actually like turning this on from day one. So in other words, even though it's virtual, it's still very local. 
It's still very local, exactly. Every, there's actually an interesting study that came out uh, that showed that there is no, there, there are literally no two states in the U.S. that have the same policies. And even within the states, some of the policies conflict between like state law and Medicaid law, and it's it's very convoluted. So that whole you know sort of jungle of of, of policy is one big thing that there's been talk of change, and I wonder you know given the current situation, how much that will rise to the top as a potential regulatory change that, that might be put on the table. What sort of change do you think could happen? Well, just to relax the constraints on licensure so that yeah. there's essentially, like imagine like a common app type construct yeah. where yeah. you could apply once and have um, coverage yeah. across multiple states. And then the reimbursement one is interesting because we uh, we just saw that the, the White House signed a emergency bill that relaxed the constraints on reimbursement for telehealth services uh, for the Medicare population. Because um, historically, that's been another huge constraint that it was only reimbursable under very specific circumstances. For instance, like if patients were located in rural areas that were deemed, uh, you know, sort of low access, um, those were the only situations where you could get reimbursed. But now um, they've taken that that off the table. We already see positive tailwinds there, but that historically has also been a big challenge is just getting paid for for doing the service. Interesting. How about scalability? One of the things I'm very curious about is how this could help scaling. Uh, and there's different versions of scaling. One of the real, one of the real challenges is just um, how do you schedule and and sort of mm-hmm. do the people matching problem. And if you had just a bank of virtual doctors or RNs uh, that could then be much more easily routed to anyone throughout the country, you could do load balancing between regions and so on mm-hmm. in a way where you know everyone would be at very high capacity. And yeah. in uh, situations where there is just extreme need. You could have a five-minute virtual visit that maybe gets the basics done in a way that that just really wouldn't be possible to do um, in person, where you're just you know the with the rooms packed and the parking packed and the roads packed. Um, You know, there's just things that you could do at scale that you couldn't do in other ways. And I think that gets to a broader point of like when you when when healthcare goes virtual you don't think about just like taking the way that things work in the physical world and then just like translating it to a virtual version of that. But you can sort of like reinvent from from the ground up the actual operating model of how that works. Today's healthcare system is the patient has to, ha- like the, everything is optimized for the provider's schedule. Mm-hmm. Even the notion of like pre-booking an appointment and making it work for us, us meaning patients going out of our way to um, accommodate the schedules on the supply side um, like you could entirely flip that on its head, especially if you think about a world in which you're continuously monitoring patients. It's not the patient sort of determining that he or she needs to go see a doctor, but rather the data saying, hey, this patient needs intervention and actually having the provider side of the market, you know, reach out to the consumer side. So I think there's like lots of opportunity there to make it much more patient centric as well as much more proactive so that it's not, again, it's not, it's not up to the, the burden is not on the patient to have to figure out when it's appropriate to go in. So it's not just you reaching out to your doctor to get virtual care. It's the virtual care reaching out to you when you need it and you may not even realize it. Yeah. The whole notion of like provider networks and even like what is a provider um, sort of changes fundamentally where uh, this this is also potentially a cultural shift where um, in, in order to do like really intelligent load balancing, it might be the case that you're not necessarily going to have an established long-term relationship with like a single human being, but kind of more of a care team. And this is a model that's been talked about, you know, for a while, this notion of like the medical home or medical neighborhoods where you have 
more of a care team model, and therefore you're not constrained by any one individual player in the system, um, but rather can tap into multiple uh, resources. Um, and that's that's a I think that'll be a big cultural change, um, at least here in the U.S. It's funny because you know we do I you know I have a dermatologist and I have like a I don't know, dentist, and I have a PCP. But it does seem that the way you develop a relationship with one PCP and you sort of assume they know you and they're looking out for the 360 degrees of you, whether or not that's actually true, Mm -hmm. that is like a very, that does feel like an important cultural and emotional thing in this particular culture. Is there, is there a way to do both in the virtual? I mean, we've seen this in other aspects of our lives, right? Like um, you can still have a phenomenal customer experience when you have like really good CRM and just really good 360 data on who you are as a consumer um, in like retail. And, you know, like every time I I interact with an airline, like they know my whole history and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we've seen this in OB, um, you know, I think these days, most, uh, at least the larger hospitals um, and and larger OB uh, clinics, um, knowing that it might not be your OB who's actually delivering you um, based on, you know, when you go into labor, they try to actually introduce you to the entire care team as part of the prenatal experience mm-hmm. so that no matter who ends up being there, like at, 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 at uh, uh, during, during game time, so to speak, um, you, you're going to have at least some established relationship with them. I think it's more about like, how are you setting expectations to the patient upfront and giving them the room to actually meet everyone um, right. in, a, in a low risk way such that when stuff hits the fan, you have that pre-existing relationship. But it does. And even in your example with the OBs, it sort of reminds me of like, okay, so yeah, I sort of knew all along that whoever I got at the hospital was going to be the person I got at the hospital. And in a way that was a totally separate event from my pregnancy and like Mm -hmm. tracking me through the pregnancy and understanding what was going on with me, you know, in a way it's almost unbundling the experience, right? (laughs) Yep. You know, you could take this virtual idea even one step further, whether it's like a like a really good chatbot, a chatbot that uh, could answer sort of standard questions, a chatbot that knows your um, history and connect to that and naturally would and could escalate to a human being uh, and beyond. That gets really interesting in terms of scale. And uh, the question is, in my mind, can that type of service you know, how, what fraction of what a doctor does could be serviced by something like that? Obviously, there's a lot that couldn't. But in terms of just having that with you at any time that you could just asynchronously connect with, to ask any sort of health question, and and with the sort of knowledge that, that the answers are uh, completely accurate and so on, which is a very high bar to make sure that we reach, that's a whole nother direction. And you can see how that just gets uh, smarter and smarter as time goes on. You guys have heard me talk about Baymax from the movie Big Hero 6. <laughs> like, we're all going to have a Baymax at some point. Yeah. Japan is, like, way ahead on this. So if you actually look at, like, the landscape of companion robots in Japan, they actually have, like, pet robots, right? Mm-hmm. And um, in some ways, like, a lot of why the promise of, like, humanoid robots has kind of, you know, fallen short is, like, we have such high expectations for the level of intelligence that those you know, quote unquote human robots have. Whereas like if it's a pet, you know, your bar goes down, but there's still like a tremendous amount of therapeutic benefit to having that kind of companion. And so like, especially with the silver tsunami and the elderly population and what have you, there's like a pretty meaty set of things that you could do in a very basic form that are not clinical in nature, that don't require clinical judgment, that um, would still hugely benefit the system, both in terms of just like reducing anxiety, right? Like at a basic yeah. level. Wasn't there a, some kind of study where they had baby seal robots in elder care <laughs> facility for that the- That sounds about right. For the, no, they did, for, for yeah. the um, empathy and the comfort 
as a particular clinical need in the in those yeah. in that setting. So if we're at the tipping point, if this if this moment is sort of the tipping point for for virtual medicine, two questions. One, why did it take a pandemic to get here? And then two, what do you think is the most the, the sort of most immediate near-term things that we're going to see start rolling out right now as, you know, not just video chat, but are there other things we're going to start seeing today, tomorrow with COVID going on that we're going to all be getting more familiar with? It's unfortunate that this had to be the forcing event to sort of bring all of this to light, but there are a number of tailwinds that have been in motion that enabled us to actually respond in a way that's reasonable in light of this kind of crisis, which definitely would not have been the case, I would say, you know, five or six years ago. Like just like the very visceral understanding that costs are spiraling out of control in the way that we deliver medicine in the physical world today is just not sustainable um, to patients just being at their wits end with regards to access and convenience um, and therefore being willing to adopt these types of novel technologies uh, combined with what we talked about earlier where other part in other parts of our lives we are now getting much more comfortable with the notion of you know either asynchronous communication or video based communication and then now like the actual virtual care platform technology is uh, mature enough to actually be delivered at scale i was like one of the very early adopters of some of the um, early telehealth solutions and it was super choppy like the you know the video quality was bad and um, it, it was just not a smooth experience but if you do it today it's very very streamlined so i think the confluence of all those things like had to be in place such that we could respond in a situation like this in the way that we are but do you think that we would be doing it without something like this to push us over into it do you think it would just take have taken longer I think it would have just taken longer. I think it's the the forcing function is not just like adoption, but it's also again like there's top down regulatory change that's enabling reimbursement. There's you know I hope uh, more relaxing of of the regulation around like medical licensure. Um, it's and I think we will see like in the next year a tremendous uptick in adoption by at least the enterprise side of the of the market for access to virtual care services, which has always been like an emerging area. It's definitely gotten a lot of um, early uptake, but you know, this could be the thing that pushes it into the mainstream. The UIs for these things are kind of clunky, especially in a world where people have like Google and Facebook and things where uh, these consumer products have really elegant UIs. And uh, uh, it's clear the utility, if we can get people to use them, be comfortable with it. Uh, I'm just imagining while we're talking like a Facebook like feed where I'm chatting with, you know, my various doctors and everything's in there and like my records are there and these are coming up as posts and I can just look through it. Uh, maybe I could even look through my kids uh, feed to see how their medicine's going. Um, that really wouldn't be that hard to do in principle and practice, you know, UIs are an art and so on. But I, I think if we can f force the tools to sort of come up to speed with what people's expectations are, I have a feeling the engagement could be comparable to engagement in other sort of consumer-like products. And it's interesting because it seems to me like right now, you know, the sort of um, incentive to do so is aligned on both sides, right? Like nobody actually wants to go into their doctor's office right now. Doctors also don't want you to go into the doctor's office right now. Like it's unusual for everybody to be aligned in that way where we're all incentivized to use something like this at the same time. Well, I'm, I'll add one more thing, which is that uh, these difficult times um, often create some of the most exciting startups and that uh, we have this combination now for sort of the fire to do that combined with all of these things just in our face. You don't need a world pandemic for it to be an individual you know, crisis. And what can we do to handle my crisis in the future? 
hopefully this will give us a, a model for that. Whole new yeah. set of tools. Virtual care is actually in some ways like the perfect solution at a time when we need lower cost ways to deliver care because the actual way by which you can just eliminate so much of the, the cost structure of, of the traditional healthcare system. Thank you so much for joining us both on the A16Z podcast goes remote. Thank you. Stay healthy.